Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, calls continue for the resignation of Ontario's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams. The Premier is defending him, but the debate continues. We'll get into that. McMaster University is creating and leading an anti-pandemic network that will help avert future pandemics. We'll give you some of the details on that. And if a COVID-19 vaccine comes through, experts say it's going to take a significant amount of people getting vaccinated for it to be truly effective. Details coming up in just a couple of minutes. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get back to Ontario for just a second. Uh, and some of the follows from COVID-19 and the government's policies on uh, COVID-19. Uh, as it stands right now, uh, criticism and calls for the resignation of Dr. David Williams, who is the Ontario Chief Medical Officer of Health. Critics are saying that he's been slow to adopt to the pandemic and that he is a poor communicator. Uh, and also questioning his uh, endorsement of the uh, the government's back-to-school plan, which doesn't do a whole lot in the way of social distancing and a lot of people think is putting kids at risk. Uh, and this, these calls, by the way, are not just coming from teachers' unions. They're coming from a, a, a number of parents' groups that are involved in this and also the Ontario Nurses Association, who have waited on this, Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, who have put in an official complaint. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Richard Brennan, a retired journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and, of course, Parliament Hill uh, for many, many years. Uh, Badger, thanks so much for the time. Are uh, you surprised by uh, by this uh, furor over the medical officer of health? Uh, I don't so much know so much if it's a furor or not. I mean, it's, uh, you know... Uh, Greenspun, head of the Nurses Association, she's uh, she likes to hear herself talk. I mean, I like the woman, but uh, she you know talk about somebody whose time has come. Anyway, that's another story. Um, she, yeah, I mean, he's not a he's a bureaucrat. He's a civil servant, and he's not a song and dance man. So he's not the most exciting guy in the world. And maybe you know he just I think maybe to be quite frank. His uh, his shelf life is up in terms of in that job, and they and we, if we do get a, a second wave, and I don't think there's any doubt that that's going to happen, we need somebody there at the helm that really can uh, pivot pretty quickly when, when necessary. And I don't know if uh, uh, Dr. Williams is uh, is the person there to do it. And anyway, he retires in February, so you know, give the, give the guy an early retirement and, and say thanks a lot, you know, for all your efforts and goodbye. And, and put somebody in there that, you know, may be a little younger uh, and, uh, and who can adapt more quickly. The criticisms uh, that I've heard, and let's face it, I've heard a lot of them on, on this show over the last number of weeks with a number of the guests we've had, uh, are seemingly surrounding and circling around the, the, the back-to-school program. I mean, I, I get it. I, I, I totally agree with you, by the way. We've watched those daily briefings, of course, uh, you know, the Premier, and eventually the, uh, Dr. Williams gets up there, too. Uh, and he's, he's not the dynamic orator that uh, you would expect, but he's a doctor. I mean, you know, that, that's, he, he's not a showman, as you said, and uh, he, it's a little tedious listening to him and trying to get something out of this. Uh, but that's that's neither hither nor yon. It's the advice that he's giving, and it's the policy that he's setting right now. Let's let's set the school issue aside for just a second. Uh, the way everything else has been handled in this province uh, since, uh, well, let's call it the middle of March until uh, July, uh, before the school controversy started, how would you rate his performance there? I think it was journeyman uh, performance, quite frankly. I mean, he did he did what he had to, but in, in terms of the school stuff, I'm not so sure I'm going to lay all the blame at the Dr. Williams' feet. Okay, 
I think there's a lot of people agree that, that this has been you know not handled very well, and you know if that's his responsibility, well, so be it. But the point is, the, the, it's the government that decides at the end of the day whether there's going to be you know whether there's going to be distancing between the desks, how many pupils per classroom, and all that stuff. So I really believe that you know if he even had said. You know, we can't, we can't, we need fewer students in the class. I don't, I think it would have fallen on deaf ears anyway, quite frankly. Yeah, but here's, here's the thing. I, I know what you're saying, and because it ultimately falls to the elected officials that set the policy. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't ever think I got the impression that Dr. Williams was writing the policy, but he did, for all intents and purposes, give it a thumbs up, uh, which in, surprised me, frankly. Because just about every other medical expert we've talked to, uh, not just in Ontario, but of course everybody who's weighed in on COVID over the last couple of months, uh, has suggested, no, that's not the way to do this. You, you can't simply pretend that, you know, that, that everything is normal again and put 35 kids back in a classroom and expect that you're not, you're not going to have some, some, some COVID uh, cases that are going to come out of this. Yeah, I would have thought. Probably he should. Yeah. I don't think there's much doubt about that. But again, he's a civil servant. Uh, you have to. They 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 look at the you know they look at their job as to give advice to the government, and if the government takes it fine, if they don't fine, that's you know that's up to the government. So I really don't know what he said in you know in the back rooms about what it should what it should be done or what shouldn't have been done. So uh, you know it's so hard to tell. Bill is what I'm saying. The f- fact is the guy is almost done. And I and I think there should be a bit of more firebrand put in there to stand up against the government and the government's policies here, because I don't know what kind of influence, what kind of power he had to say, look at the classroom should be 15 or 20 or whatever it might have been. And, you know, and whether they listen to him or not, we, we just don't know. I think a lot of blame is being put at this guy's feet, and, I, and I'm not so sure it, he, he deserves it. Yeah, and I'm not blaming him for the policy. I'm, I'm saying I think he should have been more vocal, and I, I think you've mentioned oh, that no, already. No and I, I hate that. to draw the I, – I, I'm going to draw the analogy with the U.S. situation, uh, and it's kind of an apples and oranges thing. But, I mean, you've got uh, a government down in the States, in the White House, that, that has a certain mindset as to how they want to handle this, this crisis – uh, and you've got medical experts like Dr. Fauci and a couple of others uh, who were front and center in this whole thing. And, and I think one of the things that garnered uh, Anthony Fauci an awful lot of support and admiration was that he'd said, no, that's wrong, mm-hmm. uh, more than once. And, and he's putting his job at risk, too. I mean, he's close to retirement. But uh, but on the other hand, you saw a couple of the other doctors, Redfield and others, that seemed to, to cave into whatever Trump wanted. And people are thinking, well, is this more political or is this the best medical advice you're giving us? And, and boy, when you have that question in your head and you're wondering how safe your kids are going to be, that, that's a problem. Well, this is no time for caving in. We, we need someone, medical officer of health for the province, who is, who is willing to, to you know, stand up and say, this is what has to be done. I know what your policy is, Mr. Premier, but this is, this is for the best. If students are going to be safe, this has to be done. So I do agree on that. I think that's, you know, something that is, you know, absolutely required. But again, you know, if the government won't do it, you can advise them and tell them and, you know, shake your fist and stamp your feet all you want. 
But if they don't want to do it, and the reason the government, this government, doesn't want to do 15 or 20 kids in a class, because that would require hiring more teachers. Yep. And that is the last thing they want to do. I get that. And and I still remember the uh, the media conference when they made this announcement about the rollout. It was just, about, I guess, about a month ago, a little more than a month ago, at the end of July. Uh, and he, Dr. Williams was asked specifically, do you have a concern? And his response was evasive. Let me put it that way. He said, well, there's no perfect system. Well, that's not the answer I want from my doctor or any doctor. Of course there's no perfect system. But, you know, as, as you and I talked about just after they rolled that out, why is it that when I go to, uh, to, to Fortino's, I've got to stand 10 feet apart from everybody and I've got to wait until they scrub everything down and I have to social distance wherever I go, but in school we're going to send our kids to school next week and they don't have to do that. That doesn't It's incongruous to me. It's and I'm thinking, if, why isn't the same standard being applied to our kids? Well, and that's, that's why parents have every right to ask that. And, uh, I mean, there, there are teachers that I know who are saying, this thing will be done in October. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, that the, the, you know, the COVID will, will take off and it'll be all over. We'll be right back to square one again. And, and that shouldn't even, that shouldn't even be consideration. That shouldn't even be popping into somebody's head. I mean, we should be doing everything possible, but that that requires that requires, and, and I think that's where I do agree with the critics. That requires somebody with a, a bit of gumption. And I'm, again, you know, Dr. Williams, close to retirement, maybe he just said, you know, I'm I can see the light at the end, end of the tunnel here, and I'm I'm ready to go. And maybe that plays into his behavior. But I don't know. But you need somebody with a lot of knowledge. And who knows how to, like I say, pivot when necessary, because this is um, this is a moving target. And I, I don't have to tell, you know, everybody out there; they already know this. And we have to react to it whenever you know, the best way we can. And certainly, piling thirty-five kids or thirty kids into a classroom is no way to deal with it. You've been following this for the longest time, and your point's well taken. Uh... You know that these are civil servants. These these people don't set policy. They're you know the old rowing and steering. You know the, the politicians steer and these guys do the rowing. They do the the heavy work on this. I get that. And and he's one of them. But this is not like a, a financial. You know it's not like the, a finance minister or something. I mean because there's always going to be debates about how economics should be done and how budgets should be done, et cetera, et cetera. This is this is health. This is the health of our kids that we're dealing with here. Uh, and I understand that there's a pecking order and he doesn't want to make any waves. But by the same token, you know it's I think it's his responsibility as a doctor forget about as a bureaucrat but as a doctor to say i don't think this is the best way to do this and and be public about it and if the government insists on doing it anyway well then it's on them not on him i, I he wouldn't be getting any of this criticism if, if he had done that i just don't think he's i just don't think he's cut out of that cloth bill i don't yeah i i just don't think he's that guy and uh we, we need we do need that guy i mean you know this doctor david uh Fisman, uh the he's a, an epidemiologist outspoken epidemiologist from the university of toronto <clears throat> that's the kind of person we need we need somebody who's you know is ready to to say and do whatever they have to to make sure people are protected and 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 not be pushed around by the uh by the politicians who that person is, we don't know yet. 
Well, I mean, we've had a number of experts from U of T, from McMaster, from all over the place. And I'm not, you know, pushing anybody to the front and said, here, hire this individual. But these are, this is a crisis situation. And I mean, you know, the medical officers of health, it's, it's a, it's a tough job. I get that at the best of times. But this is something where we need leadership. We need somebody who's standing up there saying, I know what we need to do here. And I'm going to stick to my guns on that, like Fauci did in the States. Uh, frankly, like uh, Dr. Tam has done on the national level, too. Yep. Again, not the most dynamic person but you know she's been giving pretty good advice on on this whole thing the government's been following it and we've done a pretty good job in this country so far anyway uh but the school issue here i think is 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 a sticky issue and i I get that that there are people who are probably complaining about this guy and about ford himself uh simply because you know they've got a political difference and that's the way it is and that that's always going to happen isn't it well it doesn't matter who you know, this is this is so serious. This, this is affecting people's lives so dramatically, you know, and mentally and and physically. And it, really, we need you know, we need somebody at the helm here. And again, I don't know who that is. But the, I guess I'm a bit exasperated here because it's you know you, we have the critics. And they stand back and they throw the rocks and say, okay, you're doing a terrible job. Well, nobody's ever handled, like, you know, in our generation, you know, we, you know I shouldn't say we've had some incidents in, in our generation where we've had to, you know, deal with, you know, other health issues, but nothing like this. So it really, it's just it's, all new ground we're hoeing here, and we're just, they're tilling. So this is part of the problem. We just don't know where this is coming from, where it's headed, and how we're going to deal with it, and how we're going to deal with it that best protects all of us. We, we've, we're, you know, we're kind of around the margins on it right now. The second wave comes, what are we going to do? And we need somebody there that the politicians will listen to, somebody, some, a man or woman who are, who, you know, epidemiologists, you know, a public health, official, expert, whatever, who comes and says, this is the way we've got to do it. And there's no argument here. If we're going to protect the people of Ontario, this is how it's got to be done. And that's that's the chore that I think uh, lays ahead of us. The uh, I know we're just about out of time, but I got to touch on this one too because I, I want to get your read on this. Uh, the the document that a lot of people that are criticizing uh, Dr. Williams for right now, the, the, the document that they're hanging on to, of course, are the recommendations from Sick Kids Hospital about how this rollout should have, have occurred. Uh, and, and to their credit, the government has adopted some of that stuff. But the key issue here is they said there has to be social distancing and you have to reduce class sizes. That's right in that report. Uh, and, and that's so typical of politicians that they cherry pick some stuff out of there. Uh, and the difficult stuff they just ignore, hoping that we're going to ignore it too. But we're not ignoring that one. No, and I know I, I saw that uh, report. And no, you're absolutely right. And, they, and that, sh- that should have been front and center. But again, that didn't fit into the political, you know, uh, ideas of what they have they, they're just they aren't going to, it, to do that they're not going to make those small classrooms because they have a political agenda on that and that's all there is to it so it wouldn't have mattered quite frankly right now who is who the uh, you know the public health uh, official doctor for the province they they had decided politically that was not going to happen and that's exactly what's happened 
Yeah, nothing's going to change here. I mean, you know, I can do all the, the fish shaking you want, but at the end of the day, the government's going to stand behind this guy because they stand behind the policies that he's advocating. Well, that's right. And uh, that's that's politics. <laughs> not the first government, not the first political party to do that, and certainly not going to be the last. Uh, Richard, as always, thanks so much for this. Great to get your perspective on this. Okay, really, thanks a lot. We'll talk again soon. Stay well. Yeah, Richard Brennan, retired journalist who covered Queen's Park for so many years, of course. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about some of the work that's going on uh, at McMaster University. Uh, the other day we had uh, Dr. Mark Loeb on, and he was talking about his work on uh, vaccine research uh, as he's hooking up with uh, some of the folks from the U.K. and the work who's actually, that program, by the way, in the U.K. is actually being led by a Canadian. Um, so there's, that's encouraging news. But uh, McMaster has announced that they are launching the Global Nexus for Pandemic and Biological Threat to ensure that Canada and the world are better able to manage the human and economic devastation of COVID-19 and maybe even avert some future pandemics. That would be good. Uh, Jerry Wright is the uh, scientific director at McMaster's Institute for Infectious Disease Research. He's quarterbacking this uh, new initiative, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. That was entirely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I know that one of the stated goals here is uh, to try to uh, uh, attract some of the biggest and brightest uh, people in research around the world. I'm, I'm just looking at... Uh, at your lineup right now uh, with Mark Loeb, uh, Karen Mossman, and uh, a number of other folks. That's a pretty good lineup you got to begin with, Jerry. Yeah, we're, we have an outstanding team, Bill, and it's really uh, the reason why we can act, we're proposing to, to move this, you know, you know, to turn it up to 11, so to speak, to use the spinal tap analogy. The, uh, <laughs> the investments that we've made over the last 15 years and the people that we we've, have on our team puts us in a really good position to be able to to create this new this new initiative the nexus initiative which which is really to try and bring not just our great um, infectious disease uh, clinicians and researchers that are part of our institute already but to now think about um, how do we bring in all the other in, um, uh, partners that we know that are really have, are really affecting us um, are really important to these these things like pandemics and epidemics. So, economists and humanists and social scientists who are really essential to try and help us navigate through these these super the super challenging and very complex uh, problems that we're in. Uh, not to mention engineers and and obviously the clinicians and, and scientists already. So, but the the nexus idea is incredibly ambitious, but I think it's exactly where we need to go to be able to to solve these these really what we call wicked problems, very complex, multi-sectorial problems, um, and not just think about our own little specific niche area, which is, you know, whether it's you know, biochemistry or molecular biology or or whatever. You know, when when this got really bad, I mean, we heard about it late last year, and of course, just uh, around February, March, it started to fester and become a, a, a huge, huge global problem. Uh, I, I think there was a criticism leveled, and probably justifiably so, that a lot of governments got caught off guard with this uh, because they weren't quite aware. Uh, the scientific world has been working on this for quite some time. You were not caught off guard by this, were you? No, I mean, we've been saying that this is going to come, um, and you know, I've, I've made the analogy before. It's kind of like earthquake predicting the big one for earthquakes, right? You know what's going to happen, and and governments um, know that it's going to happen. But I mean, the governments are challenged. They're they're not nimble organizations. You know, they're they have very uh, uh, solid structures and very um, 
systematic ways of doing things so that when you get something like this happening, you really need to be able to move fast. And, and so I think that the example that we have at McMaster is when this hit, we were able to quickly change our labs around, start working very hard on this specific virus, apply what we learned from other problems to this. And the, this ability to move very quickly and move with our partners, as you know, you mentioned uh, Mark Loeb and his partnerships around the world, this is what we're really good at in universities. And it's challenging for governments to do that because that they're not set up. And so this, this idea that we have, this nexus idea, would be for us to be able to partner with governments, with the private sector, with our colleagues around the world, to move very fast when things like this happen. Well, was that one of the, the, the first moves there? I mean, I'm glad you brought uh, Mark into this, but I mean, there's others there as well that were doing this work. And we've known uh, Dr. Loeb's work, of course, from McMaster, and it's, it's globally accepted now as incredible work, of course. But it, you know, and he was working on flu uh, influenza epidemics and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, probably a, a, an expert, a, a world-recognized expert, of course, when it comes to testing and, and the work that needs to be done to actually determine uh, what kind of medications, what kind of treatments are necessary in this. So it, I guess it wouldn't take a whole lot, Jerry, to move from that and pivot over here and say, okay, let's direct that energy now towards uh, what's happening with COVID. And that's exactly right. And, and the, you know, the infrastructure uh, that we have available, so the, all the equipment that we have, our existing connections around the world, um, these are the reasons why we're able to move so quickly. And if we start thinking about this now, um, looking forward, you know, if we now had, a, had this opportunity to bring in you know, people working on the economy, because we know how important this is as well. So that we're talking to them at the very same time, you know, informing them that these are the challenges that we're going to face with this epidemic or this uh, outbreak that we're having and have those people as part of the group. That's the idea of the nexus idea to bring people together. Um, we can be much faster off the mark and not be caught so uh, flat-footed as we, as we were. There's so many different facets to this, and, and 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 that's why I was so intrigued when I started to read the overview of what of what you're, you're going to be doing here. And and I, I know we're talking about this from the McMaster standpoint, but your, your point's well taken, Jerry. This is actually a global initiative because of the collaborations and the networking that you have set up for over the last number of years. Yeah, we, you know, McMaster can't solve these problems by itself. We have to be working with each other. We have to be working with other sectors like government that can do. Um, things that we can't do with the private sector, for example, um, who are going to be able to develop vaccines or drugs uh, that we can't do in-house. We can help provide the information. We can help move things very quickly along the process. But at the end of the day, we need our, our partners in all these sectors and, of course, around the world because this what we're facing is, you know, something, you know, a once-in-a-century problem. But, but you know, we, we're, we're in the process of, of dealing with other pandemics, actually it's more slow moving and more quieter, like antibiotic resistance that you and I have talked about before, mm-hmm. that are ongoing and global in scale. And all of the things that we're learning now and the things that we're, the, the networks and the partnerships that we're developing now are equally applicable to, to those kinds of problems as well. So the idea of bringing it together at Mac as a hub, not as the actual center of it all, but really as a way of, of connecting people around the world and connecting people around the country, I think is, is where our ambitions lie. And I think we, we're, because of our investments, we can actually pull it off. 
Let's let's talk a little bit about the implications of this and, and the, the people that are going to be working in this. I, I, I'm always proud of the fact that we can always talk every year. The uh, the rankings come out about the best universities in the world. McMaster's always in that top 100 list, has been for the last number of years. And, and invariably, they cite research uh, and the great work that you do on an ongoing basis at the university, uh, not just medical research, but because the, you don't work in isolation because just as we found out with COVID, it's not just a medical problem. It's an economic problem. There's so many things that are intertwined in here and, and and you're looking at that from a, a from a a, a a global perspective that including everything and you've got that expertise right there at mcmaster with the the business as you mentioned the engineering and certainly the medical professionals and the researchers that are going on yeah we have an outstanding team and one of the things that I, that i've i've strikes me about mcmaster and and with that really keeps me uh, excited about uh, this place is is that it's it's big enough to be able to tackle these problems, but small enough that we, that we know each other across, you know, what are tra- the traditional academic silos. Um, so it's easy for us to, to walk over to, to find engineers to work with, to, to find social scientists who can help us understand, you know, what are going to be the social barriers, for example, to bring in a new vaccine. Um, these are things we need to address, not just discover the vaccine, but discover, or to, but to understand you know, how we get people to take it, how we communicate to that, and those, and those, that information. And that requires teamwork across tra- the traditional academic silos. And, uh, and McMaster's been very good at this. I mean, we, you know, we, we've been around for, for a long time, but we're always out there when it comes to innovation in terms of, of education, in terms of research. So I'm, I'm really proud of the place, and I think it's the best place to, to set up such a, an ambitious program. Jerry talked about some of the obstacles, and, and some of those are, I think, are self-evident. I mean, trying to determine vaccines, and and you know, there's there's a lot of work that's going on in the lab. Uh, but uh, this takes time, this takes money, this takes support. And and you mentioned governments a few minutes ago who have to play a key role in this. Uh, are they stepping up? Absolutely. I mean, the the amount of investment that the federal government and the provincial government have put into uh, R and D in this area. Uh, since the pandemic started is is really uh, inspiring. Um, the, the challenge, of course, is whether or not that, you know they can keep the tap on sufficiently so that we can we can be prepared for the next challenges and to, and, to, and to obviously and to manage the current one because the aftershocks of this pandemic, even if tomorrow we had a solution, um, are going to be felt uh, throughout the world and throughout the country for for probably decades. And how we how we're going to manage that, not just with the health of people, but um, but with the economy, with the so, with society as a whole, is going to require a lot of continued investment. But I'm really impressed by um, by how both uh, levels of government have really been supportive in trying to get us uh, out of this problem, helping the research and development communities, and helping actually to connect us together with private sector as well in an unprecedented way. One of the things we did at MAC with the support of, um, of our colleagues um, in government was to, to open up our labs to uh, small and, and medium and large businesses who had potential solutions but didn't have the ability to test, for example. So we've done that, um, and we're going to continue to work with those kinds of ideas, uh, with those kinds of uh, partnerships. But it really does help to have the, the government on board with all of this, of course. Jerry, how difficult is it to, to get this work done uh, when you're essentially dealing with a, a virus that, that you're learning more about almost every day? 
Uh, you know, we know more yesterday than we did today, tomorrow, than, and on and on it goes. I mean, that's it's, it's akin to trying to fix your car while you're driving down the 403. I mean, you've got to move. You've got to keep going with this. But at the same time, uh, you've got to have that critical eye and find out exactly how to handle this. You're absolutely right. And, and you know, as a scientist, this is the stuff that gets us really excited. That You know, we're in a, a fast-moving, unknown um, uh, project right now uh, that is affecting our neighbors, it's affecting our, our friends um, and the country as a whole and in fact the world as a whole. So in, in some ways, it's exactly where you want to be. This is what we've been training for years to do. I feel bad, honestly, though, for the public at large because they keep hearing how things are changing. And there's, and I, for scientists, this is what we're, we're used to. This is how the, this is how science progresses. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty. We think we have an idea of how it works out. Oh, we have to tweak that. It's not quite exactly the, what we want. Um, and so for us, this is this is um, this is exactly what we live and breathe. But I feel for the public because it's not the solution. We're, we can't give them the definitive answers all the time because we are discovering new things each and every day, as you pointed out. Uh, it makes it challenging communication-wise. And, and again, it brings up an important point about why the Nexus idea for us is important because we do need to bring in, as scientists, we get this, but we need to help communicate that to society as a whole. And that's where we really can use the, the help of our colleagues who are humanists and social scientists who can help us understand um, how to communicate our ideas to a broader public. That's a mindset, though, isn't it, uh, for, for scientists to, to, to be able to, to do that? Uh, you know, once you, you come up with a concept or an idea or what you think comes out to be a truism, it's not carved in stone. I mean, that could change tomorrow, and they, they have to be ready to pivot that way. Yeah, for us, uncertainty is part of our business. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're trained on it, and we're trained to, to, to really question everything and to change once we once this question once we get the answers back if, if it's not in line with what we've seen it's not the same of course for people who aren't scientists it's, it's hard to explain to them that that things do shift so much and really helping us understand how to make how to get those those ideas out there um, in a way that people can can accept is really important well, and we've seen that manifested even with the the messages that we have received as the public, you know, mask or no mask, and that message has changed. Uh, the impact that it has on the human body, we don't even know that yet, but we're learning something new about that almost every day as well. And I know that can be confusing to people that say, well, well, wait a minute, you didn't say that's that totally different from what you said three months ago. Well, that's because the research is continuing, and, and I guess we as a, as a community have to be ready to accept that. Yeah, and, and, and us as scientists have to be much better at communicating that to to the community at large. It, it I totally get it that because you know we're also citizens of the same society, and understanding you know the mask example is is, is a perfect one. Um, but until we really understood how the virus was was um, was propagated um, between people, you know, we didn't want people to go out and put on masks because it. it, it it didn't make sense at the time, but now that we know, then it it makes great sense. And so, so the the sands seem like they're shifting, but actually, what we're trying to do is really get to the truth, and we're moving things out of the way so we finally get to the truth. And getting that information out there in a way that people can accept um, is part of the challenge, and it's one of the reasons why we need not just a science solution, but a broader solution to all of these complex problems. And and 
and this is the sort of the core of the Nexus idea, is how do we bring all of those people in together uh, in a way that can actually be, so that when the next pandemic comes or the next epidemic comes, or just dealing, as I said, with the after effects of this one, that we will be in a, in a position to be able to inform each other and also the public at large. Well, these are troubling times, and it's, I, 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 I'm sure and others are taking great consolation in the fact there's so much work going on by you and your team, Jerry, to, to overcome this and to, to get us ready for what's going to be coming on down the road. Thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Uh, continued good luck with what you're doing down there. Uh, it's going to pay huge dividends, already has. Uh, let's uh, touch base again in just a little while and see how things are going. I'd love to. Thanks for your interest all the time, Bill. Take care. Jerry Wright, who is the uh, scientific director for McMaster's Institute for Infectious Disease Research and is quarterbacking this new Nexus program. That's exciting stuff, and that's the kind of work that's going on to try to knock this virus down, not just to control it, but to knock it down. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of talk about vaccines for COVID-19. There's a lot of work that's going on. We talked about some of the work uh, from McMaster University in Hamilton, uh, southwestern Ontario through Waterloo, uh, of course, in the U.K. Uh, lots of different uh, projects right now to try to find a vaccine, which makes us tend to think, I guess, that we're getting close to the uh, to the finish line here, and I'm not so sure that's the case. And even if we are and they do develop a vaccine or a number of vaccines, what has to happen for them to be effective? How many people actually have to be vaccinated? Let's uh, ask uh, Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Science, uh, Allison Thompson. Allison, of course, uh, is with the University of Toronto, a professor of public health sciences uh, and so many other areas of expertise. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program, Allison. Thanks for joining us again today. Thanks for having me. Let me ask you, so because I'm I'm trying to get as much information as I can about vaccines. We all know about stage one, stage two, and stage three. Uh, when it comes to testing, uh, we're told that some of these projects are already moving into stage three. Uh, I saw one doctor on TV last night that said, "Well, stage three can take upwards of two years sometime." Uh, yet, on the other hand, you've got somebody, uh, for instance, at the Federal Drug Administration down in the states, suggesting that they may fast track this. So, wh- where are we on this? So what's the safest way to go? Well, I guess it, it depends on how risky we think it is to release a vaccine uh, as compared to the risk of COVID-19. So it'll be a bit of a risk calculation in terms of, you know, due to benefits of, of releasing a vaccine earlier than we normally would outweigh the, the dangers, you know, of, of possible ad, adverse events from the vaccine. So it's a bit of a, a crapshoot in a way, but we'll use the best available evidence that we have at the time. But it will require us to really monitor people very closely to look for those safety issues that we probably just won't have a really great sense of at the time that we are rolling it out. Okay, so let's let's I'll use that two-year out marker because, I mean, sometimes it takes longer, I guess, to, to go through that to make sure that everything's fine. But I guess we really have to put the codicil on that, that there's nothing guaranteed here. There's Nothing, nothing is ever going to be 100% sure, is it? No, I, that's absolutely right. And I think that, you know, normally when we're developing vaccines, uh, we're administering them not in the context of a public health emergency. We're doing it to prevent one. And so... Yeah. The risk, the risk calculus is a little bit different than it would be under normal circumstances. So when, where is that comfort level to say, okay, we don't know everything yet, but the, the good seems to outweigh the bad at that stage? Is it, is it halfway through a stage three, is it, is, or is it based on how many people are actually in the study? Uh, 
Well, I think, you know, ultimately science can, can give us a pretty good sense of the safety and effectiveness at various time points, but really this is a question about the public tolerance for risk, and so we need to be working now to get people to understand what those risks are and what the risks are of COVID-19, and that means that we need to be really transparent about what's happening in the clinical trials. One of the things that you and I have talked about in our past discussions uh, is, is, as you said, we're learning more about this all the time. How difficult, how much more difficult is it to try to, to develop a vaccine for this as we're learning different aspects and different elements of, of COVID almost on a daily basis? It does make it challenging in terms of, you know, what do we do when we have to, to design a program that's going to vaccinate people? Because we really need to know how many people have to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. Um, and I'm not sure we're going to know that before we roll it out. We do know that it's probably fewer that fewer people need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity than we would for something like measles, which is highly contagious and airborne. Let's ask, I want to talk to you about efficacy, if I could, about the vaccine itself. And I know there are critics of the the influenza vaccine, of course, that we're supposed to get, uh, well, just another couple of months, I guess, as we're heading towards flu season. And and the criticism is always, well, come on, you know, I got the flu anyway. Well, the vaccine that's going to be developed, and it has been developed, I guess, for this year, is, I guess, it's really a calculated uh, gamble about, well, these are the two or three strains that are probably going to affect us, but there's so many other different strains of influenza that could still impact us. And so, you know, they're it's not as if it's, to your point, 100% crew. But we're dealing with a specific virus here with COVID. Uh, does, once you focus in on that and, and, and laser sharp into that, uh, is, is there a possibility that this could actually be a much more effective vaccine than, say, the influenza vaccines? Yeah, they're not the same virus. And the, one of the hallmarks of influenza is that it mutates really, really quickly. And so part of the difficulty in predicting what needs to go into that seasonal influenza vaccine is knowing which strains are going to be the most dominant that year. We don't have that problem with this uh, particular virus. It doesn't seem to mutate uh, quickly. But we do have the problem that we don't know which parts of the virus to, uh, to target and what our immune reaction needs to be yet. So all of it is a little bit of a gamble, uh, and that's why I think diversifying our uh, vaccine portfolio is really important. We've heard stories about about reinfection, Allison, over the last couple of weeks. There have been a couple of stories now of people that, uh, that had the virus, seem to have uh, been okay, and then they've reacquired it some months later. Uh, does, does that, and again, you know, we're, we're running along as we're going here, trying to pick up information. Does that indicate that this is a, a vaccine and, and that we may have to take more than once, uh, I, maybe every couple of years if, or whatever, to, to try to maximize its effect? Yeah, I think we don't really know yet uh, what what the interval will have to be between uh, sort of booster shots for this, and certainly if it mutates, we'll need to have a new vaccine. Um, but I think uh, I think with uh, more studies, we'll know whether or not those were genuine reinfections or whether they were just a reactivation of the virus. And so I'm not sure that we know yet whether that was a true reinfection uh and we don't know whether you know some people just have a different immune response to a vaccine and they don't mount as good as uh, an immune response to 
a vaccine, and so they may need booster shots more frequently than the average person. Yeah, that's one of the questions I know that you and I talked about. It was raised uh, because of some of the, the cases that we've seen here. Uh, we don't know how long the virus stays in the body. Uh, just because you're quote-unquote better now, maybe it better, you know, you, you're not showing signs, but uh, we don't know if the, if it's laying there latently inside the body and just, you know, reinfects the, the individual. That's that's to be determined, I guess, but that's, that's what the research is all about. Uh, when we talk about vaccination, uh, and... That, that's going to start another debate. We both know that. that, that you know, as soon as this is developed, uh, the anti-vaxxers are going to be out there saying, I don't want to do this. You know, it's going to kill people. And we we hear this about all sorts of, you know, people that just have this, this mindset against vaccination. So that's going to be there. And I, I hope it's minimalized, but it's going to be there nonetheless. But for this vaccine to be effective, you talked about herd immunity, uh, which is what you try to do, I guess, with vaccination plans like this. Uh, what percentage of the population have to be vaccinated for that to take effect? I don't know that we know that yet. I think we know that it, you know, for something like measles, um, we need it up in the high 90s. I think that people feel that it's probably not that high for this virus, uh, just because the the reproductive number of the of the virus is not that high. So, so probably need. Uh, significantly fewer people than for something like measles but you know it's still is going to require the vast majority of of the population to be immunized so we, we do have to worry about about the hesitancy that people feel about these vaccines and we also need to be really clear that we aren't going to know exactly what the risk is until we have data that's gathered from the real world experience of these immunization programs because clinical trials are great but they don't they don't tend to be representative of the entire population and so we're going to need to monitor particular groups who are adverse reactions and they, they tend to be people with um you know just not the most robust immune systems to begin with and they tend to be people with poor nutritional status uh, and, you know, lower incomes. And so there will need to be some strategic monitoring of adverse events. Uh, Allison, we talked uh, the other day with Dr. Mark Loeb from McMaster, of course, uh, you know, globally acknowledged infectious disease specialist, and he's done this work, most of it on influenza, but it, as he told us, he's, he's pivoted over to COVID-19, as, as many of you have now, to, to try to focus that. But he talked to us about the stage three uh, testing, as he's been doing with influenza, and now and he's going to start working with the UK group here that, on stage three for their vaccine, potential vaccine. But he talked about going to hot spots to make sure that this is going to be an effective vaccine. Places in the world where you know that the, the numbers are dramatically high, uh, I suggested you don't have to go too far. It's some places in the states right now where that's uh, that's already happening. But how important is that to to actually go where the the, the virus is at its worst to just see how effective that vaccine is going to be? It's really important because we we can't test a vaccine in a population that it's not circulating in, and so you know you really do need um, a, a large outbreak to be able to measure its efficacy. Uh, so we saw that in the rush to get Ebola vaccines uh, developed, you know, part of the rush was that we were worried that the outbreak would end before we had the data we needed. So um, that is absolutely true. And it, you know, it, it does raise some interesting ethical questions about the burden of, of research in populations that are already struggling to control outbreaks. Yeah, that's uh, that's part of that debate and should be part of that debate. But uh, if, in fact, we're going to, and I don't 
want to use the word shortcut uh, stage three and, and because we want to get as much information. But as you say, uh, the other side of that, that debate is, look, at you know, we're, we're dealing with a pandemic and people are dying. A thousand people a day in the United States are dying. They want to get that vaccine. Uh, but that element of, of, of going to the hotspots to try to da- gather data from them, uh, I would think, is, has got to be an essential part. If you're going to cut corners, that's one of the corners you don't want to cut. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you're going to get the best data from, from, uh, and the best, it's easier to design a study in a, in an area like that. So the, the numbers you would need in an area that isn't experiencing an out of control spread are, are way higher. So you're going to have to enroll way more people. And so it's going to be a lot trickier if you don't have that active outbreak happening. How, rapidly can can they get this out here uh, uh, you know we, we've heard some announcements actually in the last couple of weeks uh, from our canadian government from the, the, the trudeau government about deals that they have signed with some of the the manufacturers uh, pfizer and so many others who are obviously going to be involved in this once uh, we have a vaccine or a number of vaccines that are developed uh but it you know about so many millions of doses etc etc well they're not all going to come at once so uh, you know how quickly can we vaccinate uh, a population and in, in, in a community to the extent where it is going to be effective that's a great question and you know the the underfunding of public health over the last few decades means that we don't have um you know a great amount of resources there so i think we're going to need to think carefully about how to get these vaccines into people's arms. Um, but the other thing I worry about is that we have sort of decided, I guess, uh, with these recent announcements, not to participate in the global strategy that the WHO is developing, which is not just about getting uh, each country, you know, uh, its, its fair share of vaccines, but it's about sure that we don't distribute this vaccine or these vaccines globally based on people's ability to pay. And so Trudeau had originally signaled that he was on board with perhaps a prioritization scheme that was going to prioritize countries where we can't use public health strategies like um, quarantine and isolation without causing massive suffering. And that's not to say that we're not suffering here when we lock down, but there are parts of the world where they don't even have food and water uh, available. And so we've really absented ourselves from that conversation about what the, the global health perspective is here. And so I, I would argue that a country's ability to pay should not be how we distribute these vaccines. And so, yes, we are in a rush to get them to our citizens here, but we also have obligations to other countries uh, to make sure that, you know, it's, it's enlightened self-interest. We want to make sure that we're not going to see a resurgence because of travel once it reviews. So we really need to think carefully about our position in the world and, you know, ought we to be maybe taking um, a number and waiting a little bit longer to get access to these vaccines so that countries that are really, really struggling can get on top of these outbreaks. Allison, when that happens, and we're hoping it's sooner than later, obviously, uh, is there a protocol to be followed? I mean, I've heard some stories that uh, that frontline healthcare workers, for instance, should be at the front of the line uh, to ensure that that they're vaccinated because they're the ones that are right there dealing with this on a on an everyday basis. And and the, almost a prioritization of of to who would follow in a situation like that is is that how this is usually done? Yeah, 
um, I worked with the federal government and the Ontario government when we were planning for an influenza pandemic, and certainly healthcare workers were the top of the list for uh, access to a vaccine, but also other essential workers who are going to be doing essential jobs but are, are at higher risk because of their interaction with the public on a, on a daily basis. And so um, that, that tends to be how we prioritize things. And then once you get past those groups, then it gets a little bit trickier. And so we need to be having those conversations now about you know, who ought to be the next in line. Do you, do you envision clinics being set up uh, for the mass immunization that's going to have to take place here? Uh, or, you know, is it just, okay, just go to your doctor's office and they can do that? I mean, it seems as if the sooner we, as you mentioned, get this vaccination into the uh, into the arms of people, the better off we're all going to be as a society. So I, I'm just wondering how what the protocol is and what the strategy would be to, to make sure that, that you know, is this disseminated among the public? I think we'll see something similar to what we saw during H1N1, where we have large public health clinics uh, that you can attend to, to be vaccinated. So there'll be lots of vaccine clinics, but probably we'll be using all of our resources. Perhaps uh, your local pharmacy, depending on the type of immunization that it ends up being, um, and also your family doctor. So we'll probably have to be using all of our our strategies at once to be able to do it properly. Are you guessing, and I, I, again, this is crystal balling at this stage, but, I mean, we seem to be making some great progress uh, on a number of these projects right now. Are you guessing that, that 2021 is, is when this is all going to be happening? I think that, uh, for sure, there will be a vaccine available then, uh, but it remains to be seen, you know, are people going to trust the uh, American regulators to ensure safety? There are questions about political interference there and rushing a vaccine to market prematurely. Um, so a lot of this is going to boil down to whether the public trusts the regulators, whether they trust the information they're getting from government and public health, because we can bring it to market really soon, but if people don't want it, if people don't trust that it's been developed properly and safely to the extent that it's possible, I think we're going to have a real problem getting people to, to want to take it. Yeah, some serious questions being asked about but the, the CDC and the FDA south of the border. So uh, we'll see how that rolls out. Allison, it's a, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for shedding some light on this. My pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Professor Allison Thompson from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.